This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, come with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning, seeing that our Easter services has just passed, uh, then we're going to continue to look again at our series in Ephesians. And the last time we got as far as chapter 4, verse 16, and we did say that when you come into chapter 4, then the tone changes in Paul's writing. <coughs> and so we go, by and large, we're going from doctrine to duty, from our position in Christ to our practice in Christ, from our calling to our conduct. Belief affects behavior. And this is something that Paul continually tried to get into the early church, that how they believe, what they think, is going to affect how they live as believers. And we saw then the last time how Paul encouraged us to be in unity, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one God and Father who is above all and in us all and through us all. And then we saw how that works out in our lives in a practical way. What with humility, he said, with gentleness, with patience, with forbearance, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then we looked at the fivefold ministry, fivefold ministry gifts that are mentioned uh, in Ephesians. Uh, the, apostle, the, past, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And we give the reasons why Christ has set those in the church in order that the church may be built up spiritually, in order that they may be able to face the spiritual battles of life and also to perfect the church to get ready for his second coming because we are the bride of Christ. Now today, as we continue here, uh, living out our Christian lives. That's what I entitled last time. So I don't want to, I want to entitle it the Christian, living out our Christian lives part two this time, even though this is the eighth part in the overall series. I suppose that's as clear as mud. You're all confused now, aren't you? And so I want us to look again at how we should continue to walk out this Christian life in a world in which we live. And as we look at this particular next section, we're going to see how the, the Roman Greco world in, in Paul's day was very, very similar uh, to our day, the world in which we live. Uh, for instance, Ephesus was unquestionably one of the most sexually promiscuous cities in the whole Roman Empire, without question. The temple of Diana was given over wholly uh, to the, the worship of their fertility god, Artemis. And licentious acts were at the very, very core of their worship. They had hundreds of temple prostitutes. <laughs> and so the temple of Diana was one of the then seven wonders of the world. And uh, as you would sail in and ship to Ephesus, that would be the first thing you would see, this massive temple and the great statue of Diana, uh, which was a, a marvel, an architectural marvel to behold. And just like today, sex sells. And silversmiths and artisans and even the temple priests, uh, 
it just became a whole tourist and commercial industry for that city. People would come from all over the world for that one thing. And, and, and so Paul had running battles, particularly with the silversmiths, because uh, so many were getting saved, and it was taking away their trade. And if you read in Acts chapter 17, you'll see there was a whole big commotion in the city that the silversmiths all got together and they said that this man, Saul of Tarsus, he's, he's ruining our business. We're losing money over this because people are, are coming to, to Christ. They're, they're, they're worshiping a different God today. And so they, they all came together and there's a great amphitheater there. And, and thousands of them came and they, they shouted out, great is Diana of the Ephesians for the space of two hours. And the officials had to come in and deal with that because they didn't want to riot on their hands because then the Romans would have come in and, and dealt with it brutally. Uh, and so you see that this was causing great friction and tension, uh, particularly because of the church that was in the midst of this. And so in the midst of this sin city, could we call it, there was a thriving, uh, flourishing, on-fire church uh, that was causing them all kinds of problems within that terrible society. Now the Greeks, they prided themselves in the art of, of logic and reasoning. Uh, to them the mind was the most powerful force and intellect and knowledge and philosophy was the, was the very bedrock of their culture. And they were admired all around the world for their ability uh, to reason and to think uh, and to philosophy. And in Acts 17 again, uh, when Paul was in Athens, and there's a place called Mars Hill or Areopagus, and I've stood on it, and that was a bit like Speaker's Corner in London, where, where anybody could get up, kind of like on a soapbox, uh, and debate, you know, give whatever their opinion was, and others standing around, would, they would chip in and they would either hackle or give their opinion. And so it was a whole big debating chamber just there looking, just you can look right up and see the Parthenon up there. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a place. And, and Paul said, for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. <coughs> so they loved to hear some new thing. And Paul had some new thing to tell them. And uh, he told them about Christ, and some of them weren't happy about that. And some says, well, well, we'll hear about that again. And so there was a whole debate about this. Now, what are the two things today that people are obsessed with? Is it not the body and the mind? Is it not sex and science? Are not those two things that seems to, to drive a lot of stuff today within society? Uh, what drives the arts? What, what drives the movies, by and large? Uh, what sells certain magazines and books? Uh, what videos has turned into a billion-dollar industry? Need I tell you? We all know what that is, don't we? So is not reasoning and logic the unending pursuit of many today? Uh, and the implication would seem to be that, well, if we were more knowledgeable, uh, if we were more enlightened, if we were more reasoning, uh, then surely uh, we would not be in the trouble we are today. If only we knew more and only we understood better. Uh, but you would think that after, 
<laughs> you think that after World War II, uh, looking back to World War I, when World War II were much more technologically advanced, much more scientifically advanced than the First World War, uh, you would think that we had learned a lesson. But in fact, in World War II, we were much more brutal and barbaric and cruel and wicked than we'd ever been. And so we haven't really learned anything with all of our knowledge and with all of our science and with all our reasoning, with all of that. In fact, we've got worse rather than better, even though. And so mustard gas that was wafting over the trenches in World War I has now given place to, to the most toxic nerve gases that just even a cupful could wipe out a whole city. So is sex bad? Of course not. God was the designer of it. And God meant it for procreation and for pleasure, but within the confines of the marital bond. God put certain restrictions onto it for good reason. So there's nothing wrong with it per se because God was the giver of it. But something has gone badly wrong with it today. Is science and technology bad? Is reasoning and logic bad? Of course not. In fact, God made us as human beings the most logical thinkers, the most creative to be able to use our abilities and our mind in all of God's creation. So that was a gift from God. But something has gone badly wrong with it. Not as God intended, of course. So why am I telling you all this? Because this letter to the church of Ephesus is just as important for us today and just as relevant for us today in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. Why? Because the world's very little different now than it was then. In fact, if anything, it's gone worse now than it was then because technologically, everything's much more open to us, as we all know. And so... Belief affects behavior. In chapter 4, uh, reading from verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And so Paul here is admonishing the church then as he is admonishing us today that belief affects behavior that what we think will affect how we walk. And Paul says, I don't want you Christians walking like the pagans. That's what he's saying. You're different. You're changed. Now, don't go back into that that you've come out of. That's what he's trying to get uh, through to them. Notice several things that Paul said about how this happens. Paul says, this is how the world acts. And he starts with how they think. Because how we think will determine how we act. 
So he starts with how men think in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. And so he, he begins to say, this is why they walk the way they walk, because this is the way they think, the way they think. And how they think will determine how they walk. He says, I'm warning you, Ephesian believers, if you think that way, you'll begin to walk that way. And then notice here the downward path. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all in cleanness with greediness. Notice here the result is a downward spiral spiritually, morally, ethically. Belief affects behavior. Now, when Paul was writing to the church at Rome, he expanded that very, very thought uh, that he did in Ephesians 4. And in Romans chapter 1, again, he starts out saying something similar. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who put down and hold down the truth, who lay aside the truth, deliberately, consciously hold it back in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is, is simply this. Listen. There's a lot to know about God. And we as believers know a lot about God, although there's a lot more to know about him. But before we're ever believers, there's a lot to know about God. So God comes to unbelievers, and he, he comes at the entry level. You know, if you go to a class to learn computers or photography or science or engineering, whatever, there's an entry level class. They're not going to throw you into the deep end that you just don't even begin to understand. They're going to treat you the entry level. And the entry level for every unbeliever is creation. Something that people can see for themselves. They can look around. It's everywhere. And so that's God's entry level for every unbeliever. They don't know everything there is to know but God. We don't know everything there is to know but God. And we're believers. So what do we expect them to know? So God says, okay, I'll make it easy for you. Look around you. Look up. Look at the sky. Look at the earth. Look at the diversity that I have given on planet Earth. Look at all that. And as you look at all that, what's that saying? It's speaking of me. It's saying, see, there is a God, an intelligent, a super intelligent God who created all of this. And so nature speaks. And let me just show you this from the Old Testament. In, in, Psalm, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, 
and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is going throughout the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. In them is set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And rising, his rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its sight. Nature speaks. Nature has a voice, but nature doesn't have a heart. It has a voice, but doesn't have a heart. Observing nature will not save anybody. Observing nature will not redeem you. We need God to do that. But observing nature lets us know that there is a God who can do that. That's the entry level. Now, God has given every human being that opportunity just by observing what's around them to say there must be a God. But what has man done? He suppresses that truth. He suppresses it. He puts that down deliberately, consciously. Why? Because once you acknowledge there is a God, then God will make some demands on you. You're no longer ignorant. If there is a God, and God created all of this, then there's a reason for us being here. What is the reason for us being here? Then we need to find that out. And that's what man suppresses, because they don't want God to run their lives. They don't want that. They want to run their lives, their way. And so they suppress the truth. This is what Paul says. For the invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, in other words, they knew there was a God, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. <coughs> But notice this, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, the very creation, the very nature that God provided for man, not just a blessing, which it does, but to point to him, to worship him, to be thankful to him. Instead, they turn around and they worship the creature, not the creator. And that's at the heart of evolution today. It's the worship of the creature, not the creator. It's the creature is the thing today. It's evolution is the thing today. Not the super intelligent God who created all that. Because if you say, well, God made all of this, then where do you go with that? Then that makes more demands on us, doesn't it? Because then there's a reason for it. So today they say there is no reason. There is no purpose to life. It just happened. It just all inexplicably happened. So we leave God entirely out of it and we worship that. People spend their whole lives investigating that, never ever coming to the knowledge of the truth because they've refused the truth, they've suppressed the truth. 
But then what happens? Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in her lust one for another. Men with men committing that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. In a lot of science today, not all of it, but in a lot of science today in the world of academia and in universities and colleges, they do not want to retain God in their knowledge. There's no place for God. And if any scientist who believes in creation pops up his head above the paraffin and says, I believe in a creator, he will be hounded out of office immediately. And many have been. People have been hounded out of NASA simply because they believed in creation rather than evolution. So God gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them up. And he gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see how that belief affects behavior? That if we think wrongly, and particularly if we leave God out of the equation altogether, then we're open to everything that's against God and against the Word of God. Huh. And so Paul is saying to those believers and to us, do not think the way the world thinks or you'll begin to act the way the world acts. We're different. God has made us different. So we ought to walk differently. The world's thinking is futile, it's ignorant, it's blind, it's darkened. Why? Because man has hardened their hearts towards God. They've decided to live outside the will of God. They want to be free from any restraints that God may put upon their lives. That's the heart of the reason why they do what they do and believe what they believe. So when somebody says, I don't believe in God, there is no God. What they're really saying is, I want to do what I want to do. I want to live how I want to live. I don't want God to put any limits on my life. That's really the heart of it. Because your lifestyle is going to change once you know the Lord. But, as a big but, but that's the world that we must try to win. And it's a big job, isn't it? It's a big job. But that's the world that Christ wants us to reach because this is our world. And that was the world in those days that Paul lived and this church at Ephesus lived. That was the very community they lived amongst. Only they believed in false gods and other gods. 
But that's the world they lived in. And that's the world they had to deal with. And thank God they did. Because in the midst of it, they had this wonderful, flourishing church. And so we must live differently. In verse 20 of Ephesians 4, as we go on a little bit, it says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Well, Paul taught them, didn't he? Uh, Paul was the one who, who established them. He brought teaching of Christ and teaching of the gospel and teaching of the word of God. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away... And he mentioned several things uh, to put away. And so we learn Christ. We heard Christ. We found the truth in Christ. And we're no longer walking in darkness, but we're walking in the light. We're no longer ignorant, but we're wise to the truth. Our understanding has been enlightened. We have been born again from above. We're no longer alienated from the life of God. We have embraced the truth. We have embraced this new life in Christ. We have put off the old man. What's the old man? That old sinful nature that we once had. And we put on the new man. What's the new man? The new man is this new life in Christ. When did that happen? The moment you get saved. At that moment, you put off the old man and you put on the new man. Actually, technically, Christ... Christ put on the new man and Christ took out the old man. Paul says we have put off something and we have put on something. Now he says put away something. That old man and the putting on of the new man has already happened. It's already taken place in your life. And Paul's saying do not go back there. Don't think the way you used to think, the way they think as other Gentiles. Don't do that, because if you start to think that way, the danger is you'll go back to doing that. So don't even go down there in your thoughts. This new man, this old man, has already taken place. Colossians 3 and 3, you don't need to turn to these. Colossians 3 and 3, for you died, past tense, notice the past tenses here, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Colossians 3 and 1. You were raised with Christ. Colossians 3, 9. You have put off the old man with his deeds. 3, 10. You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And Romans 6, he said the same thing. Romans 6 and 2. We died to sin, past tense. Romans 6, 3. We have been baptized into Christ. 6, 4. We have been buried with him through baptism unto death. Romans 6, 5. We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. 6, 6. Our old self was crucified with Christ. 6, 7. We have died with Christ. All past tense. Notice, because that is past, we should not let that try to creep into our lives ever again. That's what Paul's trying to get through. 
don't think that way ever again. Because if you start to think that way, you'll start to act that way. Belief affects behavior. And so, he goes on to say, and we'll be closed in a moment or two. He goes on to say here, therefore, here's what we're to put away. Put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Put away lying. Lying was endemic in society in those days, and guess what? It's endemic in society today. Is not the problem that politicians have, is not their problem today is who believes them anymore? Is that not the problem? Do they not tell us what they're going to do until they get into power and then they do the total opposite? And then they wonder why people are stopped going to the polls in their tens of thousands. Why? Because they say, I can't believe a word that comes out of their mouth. Business is riddled with lies. Continually. Even a child, you never have to teach your child to lie. It just comes quite naturally, doesn't it? They just tell you a, a bald-faced lie right to your face and smile, as innocent as you like, and you know it's a lie. And they know it's a lie. But they think by smiling at you, they'll get away with it. You see, it's built into us, isn't it? Just to lie. So do not lie. And then it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Nor give place to the devil. Now let me just say this to you. Not all anger is bad or wrong. God was angry many times, and you read that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus was angry on occasions. He was angry at the religious leaders. He was angry at their hypocrisy. He was angry. Do you remember how angry he was when he made a whip of cords and he drove out the money changers in the temple? And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He was angry. And so there's occasions when Jesus was rightfully angry. And there's things that we should be rightfully angry about. We should be rightfully angry about injustice. We should be rightfully angry when people are being terribly abused, particularly kids and children. It's right to be angry about those things. Nothing wrong with being angry about that. And so there is what is often called a righteous indignation that rises up of an injustice or something we know is terribly wrong in society. We have right to be angry about that. But here's the problem. Most of the things that we should be angry about rightfully, we're not. And we're angry about the things we shouldn't be angry about. Most times we're angry not because of what's happening out there. We're angry about something that happens to us. Somebody offended me, so I'm angry. Somebody hurt me, so I'm angry. 
somebody did something or said something about me and I'm angry about it and I let everybody know how angry I am. That's wrong. That's not the anger that we need. Jesus was never angry about what they did to him. He was angry at what they were doing to the people, but not to him. And so being angry can be okay and can be right in its proper context, but even that, even if we're rightfully angry, he says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't let that continue. Because if you let anger continue, whether it's for a right reason or a wrong reason, it's going to cause problems in your life. You just go about angry all the time. And nobody wants to be near a person who's angry all the time. Sure they don't. Well, maybe you do. I don't. And there are people that you know, and they're angry over something all the time. They're just angry. Paul says, don't do that. You know, be angry for the right reasons. And even for the right reasons, don't let that just continue and just start to get into your heart continually. And you're angry all the time. Because what happens then, you become vindictive. <coughs> and particularly if, it's, if you're angry about something that's happened to you, if you don't deal with that quickly, you'll become vindictive. And you want to lash out and hurt. And we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all felt that. Or am I the only one who's ever felt that? You're all looking very religious at me this morning. Then he says, put away stealing. Put away stealing. Again, uh, Paul's audience, uh, remember that most of them would be poor. Many of them would be slaves. And so the opportunity and, and, the, and, the, and the want to steal uh, would be quite strong. But of course we wouldn't steal. We would never cheat on our employer, sure we wouldn't. Hmm? We wouldn't do a thing like that, sure we wouldn't. Hmm. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can steal that we don't think is stealing. But in actual fact it is. And... Uh, Employers can steal against their employees, and their employees can steal against their employers. Uh, we can take stuff, or we can use time to our advantage when it shouldn't be. There's, there's just all kinds of ways. And the trouble is, once you start to do that, where does it end? Because if you think, I got away with it there, then I'll get away with it here. Uh, and it, it just becomes something that's just not for the believers. Not for the believers. In fact, believers, when you become a believer at the start, there's a very good chance that the Holy Spirit may deal with you to make restitution. Nobody to pay back something. You know, whenever the revival, the 1859 revival in the shipyard, there were so many men got saved. There were so many men brought stuff back that he had stolen and had to build a big shed to put it in. And nobody told them to do it. They just felt convicted and they did it. My late brother-in-law told me, what, I mean, he, he was an alcoholic, and he, he says, I stole from my parents, I stole from my relatives. He says, I used to go around, they're all Christians, and I used to go around and steal their, their records. That was a time before CDs, it was long playing records. And I'd get all the Christian ones and I'd steal them out of that house, and then I would take to an aunt and uncle and sell them to them. And he says, I borrowed money of people that never repaid. And he says, one day I was walking down the main street of the city, the city in England, and I saw a man sitting in the car, and I recognized him as a man that had 
years ago had given me 10 pounds and I never paid him back. He says, I felt so convicted. And I went over to him and he says, he didn't even remember me. <laughs> and I said to him years ago, you gave me 10 pounds and I promised you'd pay it back and I didn't. He says, but I need to do this. And he, gave he says, he looked at me as if it was from Mars. But he says, I walked away and I felt so relieved that I had made restitution. In, in Proverbs, which you don't need to turn to, Proverbs 11 and 1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so God likes things to be honest. In Proverbs 20, 23, diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. And I like this one because this is kind of funny. And of course, we would never do this. <laughs> in Proverbs 20, 14, it is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he books. <laughs> Isn't that good? You see that car, mister, you know, look, it's, the tires is nearly baldy on it, and look, there's a big dent in the back, and, you know, and there's a lot of miles on it, and that's not much good. I'll, I'll give you 500 quid for it. Okay, I'll take 500 quid for it, and then you go away and say, boy, that's almost worth about five grand, that, you know, look at, you know? See, that's what that's, but that's stealing, isn't it? It's deceiving and it's stealing. Paul says, don't do that. Uh, let no corrupt words come out of your mouth. Uh, and it means something that's rotten. When you go right back to the original meaning, it's something that's rotten. Like a rotten orange or a rotten apple. It stinks. Let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. In other words, we've got to be, we've got to think how corrosive our words can be. Not just to us, but to the person that you direct them towards. Because our words has a fact, don't they? They have an effect on those that we direct them towards, but they have an effect on us. And we know the effect of somebody's doing it to us. It's not nice, is it? But we freely do it to others. And so... He says, don't do that. Don't, don't use corrosive words. Be careful what you say. Let no bitterness, no bitterness. The trouble with bitterness is, and Hebrews talks about this, you know, a root of bitterness that springs up from within. And if you don't deal with the bitterness, it'll take root in your spirit and it'll poison you. We said there some weeks ago in another context, but it's true, isn't it? You know, if you have reflux, you all know what reflux is. You know that bile that comes up your esophagus and up into your throat and into your mouth? It's, it's terrible, isn't it? It's so bitter. It's bitter as gall. And spiritually, that's what happens to your spirit when there's a root of bitterness. It just poisons your whole spirit. And I'll show up in your face, by the way. When you eat something sour, that bile comes up, your face screws up, doesn't it? You can't help it. And if you get bitterness in your spirit, it'll show up in your it'll show up in your face. Somebody says if you're happy, notify your face. And then clamor. What's clamor? Arguing, 
fighting rowing, even to the point of fisticuffs. <laughs> One pastor told me years ago, <laughs> he says, some of my elders at an elders meeting, he says, it got so hot and heavy, they invited each other out to the car park. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Honestly. He says, I was, I, I was shocked. He says, he's supposed to be spiritual leaders, and they're inviting each other to the car park to have a go at each other. They were so angry and shouting and brawling. Oh, dear. Paul says, don't do that. But we have seen churches in this country who's fallen out with each other. And who were standing outside the churches shouting at each other going in. We've seen that. And what testimony was that to the outside world? It was a laughingstock, wasn't it? It's ridiculous. I run out of time here. Evil speaking, malice, unforgiveness, and there's a host of things. Paul says, put them away. Put them away. There's no place for them in our lives. Yes, we're human. Yes, we're going to fall foul. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're going to sin from time to time. Yes, we're going to say and do the wrong thing on occasions. Yes, we know that. And there's forgiveness for that. But our propensity, our bias is not to do that. We've got a new life. The new man. And so we... We live in such a way as if we do any of those things, that we're conscious of it, and we repent of it, and then we move on. Amen? Now, I'm going to finish this differently today. Uh, Sarah, uh, last Sunday evening at her Easter uh, Sunday night, uh, she sang a song, which is a song I really love, and... It's so apropos to the message I've just preached about this new man, the old man. And so I've asked Sarah, would she come just at this point and sing this again for us? With this message in mind, that we're no longer living the way the old man lived, that we've got the new man in Christ. Amen? Amen. And so Sarah's going to come and she's going to sing this for us. And then as she sings it, then when she closes, then Jason is going to come and he's going to lead us in communion. Sir.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.